Remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Luke 20, verses 1 through 18. The words are printed uh, as well in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear now the words of the Lord. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us. By what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, this song, In Christ Alone, Uh, plays a a very special role in uh, my life and in the life of um, uh, my wife and I. Uh, I remember very clearly uh, sitting in the bleachers of the church that I went to that uh, met in a gym uh, that they had converted also into a sanctuary. That was always their master plan. 
of uh, having a sanctuary slash gym for the school and the church that met together in the same building. I remember sitting in those bleachers uh, in a very difficult time of my life uh, where I felt like I had lost all, all sense of direction of what was going on, of what I thought was happening, and I felt completely lost. And I remember that Sunday sitting in the congregation and singing this song, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. Uh, It wasn't too much uh, after that that Stephanie showed up at that church, um, that my life was drastically changed for the good. (laughs) I didn't see it at the time. Um, And uh, about a year later, we were married. And this was one of the songs that we had sung at our wedding. I still remember Tim and Jessica and Amy, the three people who uh, were close friends of ours who stood up for us in our wedding as part of our wedding party. Uh, singing this song during our ceremony, and um, just just feeling the redemption uh, of what God had done in my life uh, through that process. And the fourth verse here says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Christ is the one who drives out uh, the guilt in our life. He drives out our fear And these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about this morning as we see this. Uh, We see a Christ who drives out not only guilt in our life, but drives out the shame in our life. Who, because of what he has done for us, we no longer have to fear. As we come to chapter 20 in the book of Luke, uh, we are reminded that Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He is finally made it here. In verse uh, 51 of chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and for the next 10 chapters, he is working his way there. In chapter 19, in the triumphal entry, Jesus finally makes it into the city. And here he is in the last week of his life. We often call it the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he is teaching the people. Uh, He entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, as we looked last week, declaring that he is the king, he is the promised Messiah, as he rides in humbly on the colt, the foal of a donkey, as was prophesied. And what he does is he comes in and he goes directly to the temple, dismounts from the donkey, and starts driving out the money changers and the merchants. And once he does that, he begins teaching the people. And what they're doing is that they're hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. Except except for the religious leaders. They want him gone. They want him out of the picture. So we see here in verse 1 of chapter 20, we see what happens when Jesus comes in and starts... Um, starts clearing the temple, what happens is that a delegation from the Sanhedrin is sent to him. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jews. It's made up of chief priests, of elders, of scribes, the rulers of the people. And what the Sanhedrin is in charge of is the temple. And so when Jesus comes in and starts driving people out, uh, this group from the Sanhedrin comes to him And they ask him this question of authority. Uh, 
Jesus' presence there in the temple is unnerving to them and it's frustrating. Who does this guy think he is? This is our temple. We are in control here. What does he think he's doing? Uh, If you think uh, Jesus is questioning and uh, um, he's not submitting to their jurisdiction, been watching a couple of episodes of NCIS recently. Uh, we've recently been turned on to it. I know most of the world has already seen NCIS. Um, but there's always that tension uh, when you know, these NCIS agents arrive on the scene and the local police are already working the scene. And there's always this question of jurisdiction, of who has the authority here, uh, who has a, the power over this body, uh, over this crime scene. And usually NCIS comes in and they start flexing their muscles and eventually they get jurisdiction. Well, Jesus came in here into the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin and in a sense starts flexing his muscles. And he says, I am the one with the authority here. And the Sanhedrin is frustrated because he's taking away their power and their influence. Jesus shows up in a place where the Sanhedrin has jurisdiction or so they think. But the joke is on them, right? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and this is His Father's house. He is the one with jurisdiction here. So the Sanhedrin, this group of religious leaders, ask Him this question. They're convinced that they have the authority here, and they want to know where Jesus is getting His authority. In their mind, he is this two-bit rabbi from Galilee. And he is coming into the temple, not only just clearing it out, but teaching the people. They've heard about the miracles that this man has performed. They've heard his teaching now. They saw probably the triumphal entry. They definitely know what is going on here in the temple. And they clearly see what he is doing to the people, and everyone's flocking to him, hanging on his every word, uh, as Luke says at the end of chapter 19. So what they do is they devise this trap. They think that if they ask him this question, they can trap him, because they don't like what is going on with Jesus. They are like the fish in the story of the cat and the hat. Uh, If you uh, haven't read that story in a while, It's one that we read quite often in our family. But when the cat comes in and he starts playing these games with the children, the fish responds like this. He says, this is not a good game, said our fish as he lit. No, I do not like it, not one little bit. Now look what you did, said the fish to the cat. Now look at this house, look at this, look at that. You should not be here when our mother is not. Now get out of this house said the fish in the pot. Just like the fish who wants the cat gone, these religious leaders want Jesus out. And so they devise this plot. So they ask him, where does your authority come from? Because they feel like he has two options. He can either say, my authority comes from God. And if he says that, they feel like they've got him trapped because they feel like that is blasphemy. And if that's the case, then he is guilty of death. Uh, If he says, well, my authority is from man, he can easily be discredited uh, and dismissed. 
because then he ultimately has no authority. But they didn't realize who they were dealing with here because there wasn't just two options. With Jesus, there's always this third way. (laughs) In typical rabbi fashion, what does Jesus do? He answers their question with a question. John's baptism, he says, is it from God or is it from man? So instead of him being trapped, he traps them. And it's the perfect question because not only does it trap them, but it also gives them the answer to their question without actually answering the question. It is beautiful. So uh, the religious leaders, they deliberate here, and we, we get an insight into their deliberation. You can, you can imagine them huddling up and trying to decide how to respond to this question. Um, they aren't really concerned with the answer to the question, though, if you notice here. They're not concerned with the truth. They don't really care if John's baptism was from God or from man. What they're concerned about is how the people are going to respond to their answer. It's very interesting. Does this sound even the least bit familiar? Now, I'm going to paint with very broad strokes here for just a moment, so bear with me. (laughs) But... Uh, This reminded me a lot of our political process right now. Uh, Most politicians aren't concerned with truth or conviction. What they're concerned about with is how are people going to respond to the things that I say? How are people going to respond? And when someone comes along who speaks without regard to how people react, people tend to gravitate to that person whether or not they agree with what is being said. I think that's why certain people are gravitating to a certain candidate, if you know what I'm talking about. Because there's a certain candidate who doesn't care about what people, uh, how people are going to react. He speaks his truth. And some people really appreciate that, whether they like what is being said or not. This is what the religious leaders are doing. They're concerned with how the people are going to react to what they say. They're not concerned with whether or not John's baptism was from God or from man. They don't want to say anything that will cause the people to turn on them, so they refuse to answer the question, and Jesus then refuses to answer theirs. But the beauty of this is, is, what Jesus, uh, is how Jesus answers their question. Because by ans- asking this question of whether or not John's baptism was from God or from man, he is in a sense admitting to them, my authority comes from God. Because deep down, the leaders knew that the authority that John had did come from God. If they were to acknowledge that John was a prophet of God, then they would have also had to admit that Jesus was sent by God as well. So by not answering their question, he actually does answer their question. But he wasn't finished with them yet at this point. So he tells them this parable. And this parable makes their blood boil. Usually when Jesus tells a parable, it's, it's, it's very hidden. We don't know exactly what he is meaning by it, Often we hear his disciples afterwards saying, you know, explain this to us. What do you mean by this story that you just told? 
Well, this story that he tells here, the meaning of it is very obvious, and it makes these religious leaders' blood boil. They respond with a, surely not. Like, this cannot be the case, but it is true. These religious leaders that Jesus is dealing with here are honestly a group of narcissists. These are a group of people who are very self-absorbed. They're concerned with themselves. By their deliberation that we get insight into here, what they are concerned about is this. They're thinking, what is going to happen to our authority, to our power, to our influence over these people if this rabbi from Galilee keeps drawing these people to himself? What's going to happen if Jesus keeps gathering this following and we lose our influence. So they ask this question to trap him. They believe that however he answers this question, he's going to be discredited. Hopefully his following will decrease, and theirs will return to normal. But these leaders, I don't think, are good students of history. He has been trapped before, or so it seems, and it seems like he always wriggles free. These religious leaders are asking this question of Jesus, and they're asking it out of fear. Because they are self-absorbed, they see that Jesus was a threat to their positions of power and authority over the people. They fear that Jesus is going to take away their influence. Instead of being extraordinary men among the people, these religious leaders would simply be ordinary. And for someone who is narcissistic, who is self-absorbed, being called ordinary is like one of the worst things possible. Let's just put it that way. Uh, According to Dr. Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, narcissism, this being self-absorbed, is the shame-based fear of being ordinary. It's the fear of never being extraordinary enough to be noticed. It's the fear of never being lovable. The fear of never belonging. The fear of never cultivating a sense of purpose. And in order to combat these fears, self-centered individuals gravitate towards position of power and influence over others. They believe that in being in positions of authority, it will cause them to be noticed, to have a sense of belonging and purpose, maybe even to be loved. But here's the dramatic irony in this whole situation. The sad truth that permeates this encounter is this, that the very person who is the antidote to the poison of self, uh, being self-absorbed was the one person that they were trying to get rid of. This is the cornerstone that Jesus refers to. It's the one that should be used as a strong foundation in their lives, but instead it is crushing them and breaking them to pieces. So Jesus tells this parable. And uh, this parable, uh, a man plants a vineyard, he leaves, he allows other men to work the vineyard, And at various times, he sends servants to the vineyard in order to collect some of the fruit. 
these men who come are beaten. They're sent away empty-handed. Eventually, the vineyard owner sends his son. Surely they will respect him. But instead, they realize this is the heir. If we kill him, the vineyard can be ours. So they kill him and they cast him out. The vineyard owner then comes. He strips away the vineyard from the tenants. He kills them and he gives it to others to care for. So in this story, uh, it was very clear to the religious leaders who was who. The vineyard owner was God. The vineyard was his people, the nation of Israel, uh, the church. The tenants were the religious leaders. That was them. And the servants were the prophets that God had sent to his people. And the son, I think it's rather obvious, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Many of Jesus' parables are difficult to understand, but this one he has made abundantly clear. The religious leaders are the evil tenants. They have mistreated the servants of God. They haven't listened to the prophets. Now God's son has come, and before the week is even out, they are going to kill him. They're going to kill him. The tenants care nothing for the owner of the vineyard, his servants, or his son. They only care about themselves. They are narcissistic. They are self-absorbed. They care about themselves. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, humbly riding on the donkey, we read, uh, we talked about the fact last week that he cared about God's honor and he cared about others. The religious leader do not care about God's honor. They do not care about others. They care about themselves. So, so what? So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? So first things first. Um, if the religious leaders really wanted to know the answer to the question of where Jesus got his authority from, the answer is this. It comes from God the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the cornerstone that he mentions here at the end of the parable. Jesus has authority from his Father in heaven. What he says is truth. What he does is right. He is the one who has the rightful authority in the temple because it is his father's house. And because of his authority, Jesus should receive submission, not our questions, which is what the religious leaders are doing to him. So, first and foremost, we should not spurn our cornerstone as the religious leaders did. The religious leaders were acting in fear, of who Jesus was, they thought he was a threat to them. But instead, Jesus wasn't a threat. He's their cornerstone. And they were rejecting him. This passage really spoke to me this past week as I was studying these verses. uh, Because I realized that I am just like the religious leaders. I got insight into myself this past week, realizing that I, your pastor, am a narcissist. That I am extremely self-absorbed. Oftentimes, uh, what I do is I mask it in spiritual ways. And I think that we're really good at this as Christians, to mask our self, uh, being self-absorbed uh, in spiritual ways. Uh, When I read that quote about narcissism earlier, about being a shame-based fear of being ordinary, um, I read that because of how strongly it hit home for me. 
uh, the thought of being ordinary honestly gives me that, that deflated feeling, like when you let the air out of a balloon. Just, you feel deflated, defeated. Um, I have a fear of not being noticed, of not being lovable, of not having a sense of purpose, a fear of not having that sense of belonging that I think that the religious leaders had a fear of as well. So I get it when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they seek to destroy him because they feel like he is a threat to them. They want to destroy him because they feel like he is destroying them at their very core. If Jesus takes away their positions of power, what is going to be left of them? They feel that they will not be enough in and of themselves. If they no longer have influence over the people, then what do they have? They feel like they would be nothing, that they are nothing. And their biggest fears will be realized that people will see that there is nothing truly or truly special or unique about these individuals. They will just be ordinary, just like everybody else. But what the religious leaders don't understand is that, in reality, there's no such thing as ordinary. Uh, last night, Stephanie and I were listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Dallas. Uh, he's the head of, the head of uh, Acts 29. It's a church planting network. And in his sermon, he reminded his congregation of how everyone is created. And he reminded them of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, he reminded them of the imago dei, the fact that we are made in the image of God. And if we are truly made in the image of God, there is no way possible that we can be ordinary. Because God is not ordinary. He is extraordinary. This is how the religious leaders were made. This is how the people were made. This is how we are made in God's image. And all people are extraordinary, not because of the things that we can do, not because of the positions of power that we hold, not because of the influence that we can have over other people. No, we're extraordinary intrinsically because of how God has made us. Now, I don't want to, this sermon to be some sort of self-help, uh, you know, psychobabble that convinces us, you know, we just need to have higher self-esteem because God has made us in his image. Uh, that's not the point. That's not the gospel. Um, the point is that we, to, in reality, to see Jesus for who he really is. The religious leaders feared that Jesus would take everything that caused them to be significant. That he would take that all away from them. So they wanted to destroy him. And when they did that, they lost everything. By destroying Jesus, by destroying the son of the vineyard owner of the parable, by rejecting the cornerstone, they were falling upon it as Jesus prophesied, and it was crushing them. By rejecting Christ, by holding on to their fears, their fears were actually becoming realized. But imagine if they could have let go of their fear. 
Imagine if they would have come to Jesus with humility instead of their desire for self-preservation. I don't know exactly what Jesus would have done or what he have said in that situation. We don't have that recorded in Scripture. But what I do know is this. When we come to Jesus laying down our fears at our feet, we know what he does. Everything that we seek in this world to give us a sense of significance, to rise above the ordinary, everything will fail us. Jesus is the only one who gives us significance. Jesus doesn't call us to hide who we really are out of fear because we don't want people to see the real me, who we really are. Instead, what Jesus does is he calls us to admit who we really are, all of the gory details, all of it. He calls us to admit our sin, not hide behind a facade of self-righteousness like the religious leaders. He calls us to bring our guilt, our shame, our fears to him. To bring it like the prostitute who came to Jesus anointing his feet without fear, bringing her guilt and her shame to Christ. She went away forgiven of her sins while the religious leaders wallowed in theirs. Jesus died, taking away all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he nailed it to the cross. I have this fear of having my guilt and my shame exposed for all to see. And I often have this fear because I forget what Jesus has done with it. I forget that he paid the penalty for my sins. That he took away all my guilt and that he has left me innocent. I forget that through faith in Christ that he has justified me. That legally I stand before God not condemned, but as Romans 8 verse 1 says, with no condemnation, none whatsoever. The record of Christ has now become my record. It is as clean as his because I have been washed with the blood of Christ. And I often forget that Jesus has taken away my shame. Oh, my shame. I forget that through faith in Christ that I have been adopted into his family. That I am no longer an orphan to God. Instead, I am a son. I am a son. As John 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, or of the will of man, but born of God. Born of God. The religious leaders, in their fear, they stumbled over Jesus. They stumbled over their cornerstone, the one who could have taken away all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their fear. The question for us is, will we stumble? Will I stumble? Will you stumble? Through the good news of Jesus, God is calling us to come to Him. God is calling us to let go of our fear, 
of having our guilt and our shame exposed. God is calling us to confess our sins, to confess who we really are, to admit our fears, to come to Him. And as we confess our sins, we reveal we reveal who we really are before God. We feel exposed. We feel like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We feel naked. But through faith in Christ, God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He takes away all of our guilt and our shame. He placed it on Christ who nailed it to the cross. And instead, He places on us the righteous robes of Jesus. Talk about extraordinary. How could we ever have the fear of being seen as ordinary when we are realizing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ? That we have been justified by His blood and that we have been adopted into God's family. Now the point for us this morning is not for us to simply know that we are significant. Because the point is never about us. I hope that you don't walk out of here this morning with your head held high thinking, I am significant. Uh, My point is not for for me to create a higher sense of self-esteem in us as a congregation. Because if that's the case, God will do what he needs to do. Uh, He will bring us back to earth if we think it's all about us. Instead, as we walk out of here this morning, may we walk out knowing the love that God has for us, the real us, who we really are, all of our guilt and the shame and the fears that we have, the real us that we don't want anyone else to see because we are fearful of what others would say. May we walk out of here this morning knowing and understanding the truth of the gospel, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, We come to You as we are, the real us, with our fears, with our guilt, and our shame. And we lay them at Your feet. Father, I pray that we would not be like the religious leaders who held on to that, and because of that, stumbled over You their cornerstone. Father, I pray instead that we would realize who Jesus is in our lives, that we would offer to Him our lives, and that You would use this cornerstone of Jesus in our lives to build us up into a heavenly dwelling made for You. Father, we thank You that through Jesus that You have crushed not us, but that you have crushed our sins. You have crushed all of our enemies under his feet. Sin, Satan, death, and hell. That you have destroyed them all. That you have taken our guilt and our shame and our fear and that you have nailed them to the cross. 
and they are done. Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that we would trust You. That we would know the love that You have for us. That You would use us, Lord, for Your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.